Shout out to Interview Valet for booking this next guest. Interview Valet is a podcast booking agency. If you're looking to expand your product, service, brand, etc., going on people's podcasts is a phenomenal way to do that. Interview Valet takes care of everything. All you have to do is show up. They have relationships with podcast hosts, some of the top podcast hosts in the entire game. Uh, they they put together a flyer for you. They manage all the logistics. They manage all the booking, the all the back and forth. All you have to do is show up and be your authentic self. Check them out, interviewvalet.com. That's interview, V-A-L-E-T.com. The Optimal Life. Don, how are you today? I am fine, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, happy that you're here. So, because this is good timing to bring on somebody like you with the way things have been going in society, especially the last several years, all of the uncertainty, all of the anxieties, the fears, the chaos, you, you turn on the news, people are scaring the living you-know-what out of you every single second of every day. And we've been living in a society that has become completely fear-driven, which has, of course, led to a lot of mental health issues, a lot of emotional problems, a lot of anxieties. So let's start there. I know that you're currently the executive director of the Center for Spiritual Exchange, which we'll get to. But prior to that, what caught my eye is that you were actually the head of the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford Medical School. Take us back. How, how did you get that? Are you a, a psychiatrist? And, and how did you get that position? No, no, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I've, uh, I've been, a, an, a, when I was at Stanford, I was an executive. And so uh, I got thrown into this uh, field that's now being called the field of uh, psychospirituality um, just kind of by accident. So I, I was fortunate early on to work with one of America's great psychologists, Carl Rogers. Uh, he revolutionized psychotherapy. Um, and uh, I worked, in, um, worked with people around that approach for, for a long time. How I came to this field where, and, and let me explain a little bit about psychospirituality. What, what that involves is um, a merging of psychology, a practical spirituality, not necessarily religious, but those living from practical spiritual values and that merging with neuroscience. Um, and they've, they're all on the same page. Took them, took them a couple of hundred years to get there, but they're all on the same page, seeing the same thing that your mind, your brain, your well-being all, all emanate from, from your attitude. And your attitude can actually change your, your, physical, um, your, your, your physical status, can change the uh, power of your brain, increase the power of your brain, moving from one that does knee-jerk stress reactions to one that experiences greater peace, greater fulfillment, and greater success in life at the, at, at the level of success that you're reaching for. And I came into this field the hard way. Um, and it happened when I was back at Stanford Medical School. Um, and I lost my job there. A pretty high level executive position that I'd spent years climbing the career ladder to reach. And nine days after losing my job, I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And oftentimes it takes a catastrophe like that to wake somebody up to, to who and, and what they are and what they, what they were born to 
experience here on earth. And that was my wake up. You know, the doctors told me that the uh, tumor that I had, although it wasn't malignant, it was in, a, in an unfortunate place that uh, could probably leave me seriously disabled and even potentially unable to work again. And I was married at the time. I had four kids. My marriage was in trouble because my my whole focus had been on, you know, climbing the career ladder. So suddenly my life was coming apart at the seams and it seemed there was nothing I could do about it. And I had to wait six weeks for brain surgery, which I was relieved to not have to, you know, submit to it right away. But I underestimated the amount of fear I would be in and the amount of rumination that would, would cause me. And so for the first two weeks, I was cast into an emotional hell that was incredibly painful. You know, every night I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I'd stare out the window into the cold, dark night, terrified by what might happen to me and to my family. You know, homelessness was very much on my horizon, or at least it seemed to me. And then one night, one night you know, two weeks into the, these, uh, this horror, um, I asked myself or something within me asked me a pretty simple question. It asked me, you know, what was worse? The dire problems that the doctors predicted that might happen to me out there in the future or the abject fear that was happening in me every day, you know, all day long for the last two weeks mm. and, you know, wearing me out, bone chilling fear, consuming me, depleting the strength I knew I needed to get, get through this ordeal. So for the next half hour, I worked with a process I'd learned from Carl Rogers, that famous American psychologist, that I actually talked to people, but I'd never really used it, you know, used it for myself. And it involved being diligently aware of every fearful, painful thing I was thinking and the emotion that it was generating all the way from, you know, terror to pessimism to feelings of being absolutely doomed. Let it all up, let it all come through and let it come through without interfering with it, without trying to change it, just getting in touch with it, getting touch with what was going on inside of me. And I did that. And I was hopeful that in doing that, things would calm down. But, you know, as soon as I opened the door to the amount of fear I was running, it, it became overwhelming. And I had to write it, I had to write it like, you know, a surfer rides a big wave, hoping that, you know, the wave will deliver you to shore. And to my amazement, it did. Uh, I eventually calmed down, it, the fear eventually passed. I could see really clearly that the, the emotional reaction I was having was in me, was not necessarily in reality. It was, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you go for a, a picnic and, and it rains on your picnic and you've had all this preparation you've put into it. And uh, is, you know, you, you blame the rain for, for your upset. Well, you know, the rain's just being the rain. My body was just being my body. The whole reaction I was having to it, that was in me. And so again, you know, when I, I get calm, but then these fears would come back up. I kept processing them. And it got shorter and shorter to the point at which they would pass and leave me, leave me calm in a state of calm. And eventually I reached this point after about an hour of actually feeling at peace through this process of awareness, of virtually doing nothing, but just allowing the fear I was in, not repressing it, not changing it into something else. Um, 
And I knew I was at peace because when I looked out that window, I didn't see that oblivion anymore, that black hole about to suck me and my family into it. Uh, what I saw was it was a beautiful night. It was a lovely uh, moonlit night. You know, the moon was shimmering on the beautiful oak tree in front of my house. And, and I was present with it. I was, I'd reached the here and now. And I realized here and now I was all right. Here and now, and if I could stay in this place and I could let go of my fear in this simple way, I'd be, I felt I'd be all right. It was the first optimism I'd felt in, in months. And so I, you know, a month later, reported to, um, to, for surgery, and the surgery turned out to be a complete success. It spared me a life of uh, disability. And, um, it, it, you know, the doctor who operated on, he, he actually... Um, made, you know, medical points for pulling that surgery off. Well, I was convinced it was a shift in attitude, the shift in perspective, the shift towards living from, more, from a more spiritual point of view instead, and, and, you know, learning to let go of fear and, and allowing peace and, and joy to arise all by itself. I got pretty good at it. Um, and so, you know, if I would have asked doctors back then, back, this was back in the 80s, and if I would have asked them back then, did my shift in mind, my shift in mindset, influence the outcome of this surgery, influence my medical outcome, they would have said, no, that's just hippie talk. But since that time, there's been a number of breakthroughs. Now they call it the mind-body connection. They call it neuroplasticity, which means a change in your experience literally changes your brain, it change, changes your whole biochemistry, changes the way your chromosomes are functioning. And um, that's definitive now. It's not even theoretical anymore. And so I made up my mind at that point to, to continue to live my life in this way. And eventually, you know, I landed a, a position as executive director for the Center for Attitudinal Healing, which pioneered um, an approach to overcoming catastrophic life events. We worked with some of the most stressful things people deal with, people who were facing life-threatening illness, parents who'd lost children, life people in prison serving life sentences. Clinton administration even sent us off into Croatia and Bosnia to work with refugees in that, from that genocidal war. And Let me ask you real quick, Don. Sure. Let me just ask you about that, because you guys were awarded that at Stanford, you guys were awarded the, uh, uh, you have the psycho-spiritual approach for overcoming catastrophic life events, which in 2005 was awarded an excellence award from the American Medical Association. When you deal with the parents that have lost children, which to me has to be the most catastrophic life event I could ever fathom, what are the things that you're helping them with so that they can at least find some type of joy and solitude as they move forward what you're finding what, what, what the best thing you can do with somebody facing that and i agree with you it's probably the most stressful thing a person goes through and and so the one thing that we did and and by the way that um citation for the from the american medical association for the excellence in medicine award that was awarded to this center the center for attitudinal healing where i was working now at stanford and what we did is we put people in groups and so there would be a group of people 10 
12, 15 people, all of whom facing the same, um, the same pain. And so we put the people who had, who had lost a child in the group to support one another. And we gave them a set of spiritual principles to, to, um, to orient themselves to. The first being that the essence of our being is love and that health is inner peace and that healing is letting go of fear. And, you know, a big fear that people have is that they'll never experience joy again. They'll never feel safe with the, in, in terms of love again. And gradually, in that kind of environment, um, people become an enormous support to each other, an extraordinary support to each other. And they extend patience and compassion. They allow everybody to have their own process in moving moving forward, even, even if part of their moving forward is moving backwards, there's compassion and patience with their process. And eventually people, you know, recover their lives. Um, I, I, in, in those groups, when I would facilitate those groups, um, I didn't, I, I don't remember anybody who didn't recover that, that their heart. The, the love in their heart, didn't recover their sense of safety again, didn't move on. You know, there's one thing that you discover in a group like that is the enormous resilience that resides within hu- with a human being's spirit. Mm-hmm. So that's what you do. It's just, it's just really that simple. So it's the community aspect and people that are similar, grieving similar or identical situations. Because, yeah, to, to me, that has to be so hard to feel safe again, so hard to feel like you never want to, if you have other children, you never want to leave their side. I would imagine you live in constant fear, like something, the, the, the other shoe is going to fall to one of your other kids. What if you were contemplating having another baby? I, I just think that there's so many things that these parents must have to be going through. And it's got to be tremendously difficult when you're sitting there in those group and observing these group uh, meetings and settings. What is just the atmosphere like? If you can kind of just peel behind the curtain, the emotional uh, atmosphere, what is it? What's going on? It's an atmosphere of love. It's an atmosphere of caring. It's an atmosphere of, of uh, people have, hearts open to one another so that, you know, one of the ways in which um, healing that kind of grief happens is through, through a, a process of helping somebody else. It, you know, when, when you're consumed with that level of grief, um, you're, you're, you're completely focused on your own pain and what bring what helps to begin gradually to bring you out of that, um, focus that that oppressive focus that's so painful is by helping another person um and you also learn in those in that atmosphere um how about breakthroughs that happen so like if you and i are in that group together i'll have a breakthrough i'll talk about it i'll share it and that breakthrough will give you hope and so it's just, it's just um the essential uh ingredient in the atmosphere of that group, the central What's an atmosphere. example, Don? What's an example of a breakthrough in that setting? Is is when when you discover that um, grief the, the grief doesn't uh, that grief is something you have to go through, but it, it doesn't define you. 
doesn't define your life and it doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be forever. But as you're, and then it's the discovery too, that as you embrace it and share it and help other people work through their own grief, that you actually move past it, that you actually begin to heal it. And um, that's a, that's a, that's a, a profound discovery for people to make because most of what people do when they're in pain is they repress it or suppress it. They resist it. Uh, they may even try to turn it into, a, you know, something else through positive emotion. And yet there it is. It, it always comes, you know, if you, you dodge it, if you, you know, sort of you push it out the front door, next thing you know, it's coming back through the back door. You don't, you, you don't go around it. You have to go through it. And eventually those groups gave people the opportunity to gradually come to that understanding that the, um, the way of healing was really to embrace the grief that they were in and to move through it and, and to eventually, and that as they did that in, in that loving atmosphere, they'd eventually move beyond it. They'd always experienced the loss, but their lives wouldn't be darkened you know, in the way that grief can darken a life in the beginning. Mm, that's so powerful. That's it is so powerful. powerful. And it's a powerful, it's a powerful reminder to all of us, the difference we make in each other's lives when we show up in a loving and patient and compassionate way for somebody else's pain. You know, sometimes what people would talk about in that group is uh, their uh, other family members outside of the immediate family would get impatient with them. Oh, are you still grieving? Are you still in pain? Why don't you get over it? And you know, those family members who, who are treating them in that way, basically really what they're doing is that they're trying to get rid of the pain they're in about it. And, and they don't want their daughter or their son to, to be a reminder of the loss. They so you're suggesting that other family members that were maybe not immediate family, but other people, or maybe was immediate, would at times say to the person, the parent that lost a the child, they say, what are you still, you haven't got over this yet? Yeah. It would make yes. a- people, it's, very, it's not as uncommon as you might think. It, people get weary. You know, that uh, what happens is, is that for a year or two, um, if, you, if you've had a, a major loss in your life, um, you're going to be in grief. And so when you show up, you know, you're friend's house or, or your fa- other family member's house, you're going to have that grief on your face. And it's going to make those other people feel uncomfortable. And after about a year of it, they may be patient for a year, but after uh, six months or a year of it, it's not uncommon for people to say, why don't you get over it? Why aren't you over this by now? Why don't you let go? Why don't you move on with your life? Um, That's so, so shocking to me. Oh, it's, it's, it's pretty common. It's so, you know, it's amazing how many people Don lack empathy towards other people. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Well, once you're in, if you were in my shoes, you would know exactly why I don't do this and don't do that. It's incredible how people lack the ability to put themselves in somebody else's position, especially this, this is the most monumental grief, grieving place somebody could potentially be. For the next 30 years of their life, if they're going to feel they're going to feel sadness forever. I don't care how much you guys help these people, Don, and I'm glad you do. But we all know that th- their lives are never the same. They may it might not define them, 
but there's no way that they could live the exact same life they were living prior to this uh, devastating situation. I've, well, I've seen people uh, uh, move to really profoundly beautiful places as a result of the, the pain that they endured and overcame. I, people in that group, um, they came back, you know, as, as the grief began to subside. Um, they came back into those groups and, and became caregivers to people who had recently lost a child. Uh, and they, they would talk about the, the process that they went through actually opened their heart wider than it had been before. That, you know, the, there's a thing about uh, pain is that pain is an enormous teacher to us. And um, it, it's, it's there to, to wake us up to, to this power that we have within us, to this beauty that we have within us, this essence that is always there, always available, but gets blocked. And so people who go through very difficult times, you know, one of the things about working with people with facing catastrophic life events is that uh, it's an incredible privilege to watch how they first are really stuck, how they are um, blocked from feeling any kind of joy how, how fear is dominating them, um, and to watch how they gradually move through that, let that go, and open up to the, the essence of love within themselves and how it changed their lives. There was this one woman when I was um, in Croatia working with the refugees there who had experienced extreme post-traumatic stress, unbelievable uh, post-traumatic stress. They had, you know, the, the Muslims were going after the Christians, the Serbs were going after um, the Croatians and, and the Bosnians. And so you had, you had within families, people turning on each other, if you can imagine that. And then there was this horrendous, horrible atrocities that were committed by people. And so when we did a workshop, about 300 people showed up for this workshop in Zagreb. And um, there was one woman, she really exemplified what everybody in that group was going through. She showed up to the workshop. She was dressed in uh, dark clothes. Uh, I figured she was Muslim. She had a scarf pulled tight. She's wearing sunglasses. I mean, she was, she was blocked, completely blocked. And, and her appearance showed it. And over the course of that workshop, it was a three-day workshop, um, she went through this change and I observed it in her um, appearance because the next day she, I didn't think she'd come back the next day. And the next day she showed up, the, she had gotten rid of the sunglasses and the, she wasn't dressed in all in black. And gradually it reached the last thing. She showed up and she was in colorful clothes. And at the end of the workshop, she raised her hand and she wanted to share. And she stood up and she said, I didn't realize that my biggest fear was that because of what had happened to me and the way in which my in-laws turned on me, that I, could, I would never be happy again. And all the people that I had loved who I watched die, that because of that, my, I would never feel safe again and my heart would never be open again. And I'd never have that love in my heart again. And she said, and I found this weekend, my heart is opened. Wow. And, I'm going to, and I am going to do, I'm going to keep it open. 
Well, what she discovered is what we're all looking for is that that fountainhead of love and peace and acceptance and resilience that lies in every human heart that we're all searching for. And so few people are finding. And, you know, sometimes it takes something dramatic, uh, something earth-shaking to wake us up to, to that. And, and that's, that's, that's what it's about. It's yeah, about that's an what, interesting point too, Don. It sounds like you're suggesting that pain is really a catalyst for us finding the ultimate and optimal love within, almost as if somebody that hasn't faced adversities or some kind of real hardship in life may be lacking the potential to get to a deeper place spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Sure. Well, and it also goes for people. Most of us, what we do with pain is we repress it and suppress it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet you can, pain can become, your suffering can become your, your friend. It can become the very thing that taps you on the shoulder to try to wake you up. And, you know, what do I mean by waking up? I mean, waking up to your capacity for happiness, to your, past, your capacity fulfillment. You know, if you look at all the data, it's, you'll see that it's really hard to find a completely happy person who's at peace with himself. It only um, amounts to about 4% of the population. And the irony is, is that we're born happy. You know, when science wants to look to see what is our human nature, they look to children. And you look at children, they're full of wonder, they're full of happiness. They can shift from being from a crying state into a happy state uh, on a dime. Um, that's because that's in our nature. It's in our nature to be happy. We're born free, but we've become trapped in our own limited thinking. We're born with an open heart that stress and fear so easily close in us. We're born gifted. We're born gifted beings of immeasurable worth but we often feel like, you know, we're not good enough. And there's this divinity of joy within us and surrounding us that's there to make our lives meaningful and beautiful and rich, but we become blocked from seeing it. It's as if, as if, you know, we've been dragged up on stage and hypnotized to see what's not there and not yeah. see what is there. And one of the ways in which we wake up is by, the, by facing the, the suffering that that creates. And we usually blame ourselves for, for the suffering. Well, you know, how did we get hypnotized? Well, we got hypnotized by society. Society programmed it, all that joy and love and peace and sense of wonder right out of us. It stamped into us the belief that happiness and self-worth, they're found out there in the world. And if we work long and hard enough, you know, success is going to come our way. And out of that, happiness and fulfillment will come. And we've all swallowed that formula. And then, you know, around midlife, uh, we realize that success has come without, you know, whatever degree it has, but without fulfillment. You know, like Tony Robbins says that success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure in life. And that, you know, it's failing at living. Well, waking up is a realization that contrary to what society has drilled into you, taught you, nothing, but absolutely nothing of the outside world can make you happy. And it's not that success is unimportant. Of course it is. 
but success is not the same as fulfillment. Fulfillment doesn't come from the world, from, from your achievements. Happiness doesn't come from that. Not the radiance, ha radiant happiness of a child um, that's constant, makes you smile for no reason. Happiness comes from within you. And the truth is, there's not a single moment in our life when we don't have everything we need to be happy and at peace with ourselves. The only reason we're ever unhappy is because we're focusing on what we don't have rather than what we have right here, right now. And, you know, and those people in that gr grief group of parents who had lost children, um, I, I saw many of those people come to that conclusion that, you know, I don't have my son anymore. I don't have my daughter anymore. But right here, right now, I can open myself and allow happiness to be my experience, to allow it to rise in and of itself, all by itself. And what that means is, you know, you're not broken. You know, life, life will inflict all kinds of things on, on you, but, but the essence of you is never broken. You're not some problem to be solved. You're okay. And if there's a problem, it's a way that you've been programmed to believe without something or some person or some result, you can't be happy. And it's a false belief. You don't acquire happiness. You don't acquire peace or love. You don't have to earn it. You have it already. And that's a huge wake up. That's a wake up of that woman I was telling you about, of that, that refugee woman. It's a wake up of the people in, in that grief group. They finally came back to life. They came back and they came back to life. I don't mean out there life, but life. They came back, they came home to themselves, to the oh, life within themselves. That's powerful. They came home to themselves. And I so like what that, that takes is stop, um, so stop, uh, Suppressing stop fixing yourself, <laughs> stop fixing yourself, stop. And by that, you mean stop repressing and stop trying to, to change yourself. Um, and, and I laugh because stop fixing yourself is the book that you've edited. Uh, Wake up all as well, which we'll talk about. But I just wanted to get to something there because you talked about how society throws all these different things and we've all drank the same juice and we all have been made to believe that you need to attain X, Y, Z. And what it ultimately does is it causes us as human beings, correct me if I'm wrong, to attach. And when we attach and we have these attachments, ultimately, then we live in a fear state again of we're going to ultimately one day lose this attachment. Something's going to change. This person's going to be different. I'm going to lose the love of my life. I'm going to lose a family member, a friend, uh, my beautiful car, my job like Don did back in the 80s whatever it is that causes this attachment. And then we live in this constant loop cycle of fear. And then ultimately quite often that fear is realized. Is that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. You know, and so he, here's, here's what, uh, here's what defines an attachment. An attachment is this mo emotional state of clean that's caused by the belief that without something or some person or some result, some outcome, you can't be happy. You can't be at peace. And at some point today, you know, I invite your listeners to write uh, at the top of a piece of paper, the phrase, I cannot be happy or I cannot be at peace until or unless, and then fill in the blank and just keep filling in the blanks. For example, I cannot be happy unless my wife, my, my spouse agrees with me about this issue, or I cannot be happy until my boss appreciates me, or I cannot be happy until I'm out of debt, 
or I cannot be happy until the pandemic is over. I cannot be happy until my, neuro my neurosis is gone. Anything that's true for you. And then look the list over and consider that these thoughts, these beliefs block your natural state of happiness and spend some time seeing each thing that you cling to for what it really is, which is the, uh, the seeds of a nightmare that cause you excitement and pleasure on the one hand, you know, excitement if you get what you want, and, and then suffering on the other hand to worry about how do I keep it or the insecurity, of, like you said, is, is my beloved going to leave me or the tension and anxiety and fear that people have about the fear of failing at work and, and you know, all that unhappiness, you know, we fluctuate back and forth. You know, you, you want a, a brand new car and, you know, it's, you're, you're happy to be driving it. But when you park it, you're worried somebody's going to put a ding in it or, you know, it's the, that's what attachment does. So if you look carefully, you see that the one and only thing that causes unhappiness is this attachment. And it's not that, um, you know, it's not about renouncing the world. Um, the material world, you know, one uses the material world, one enjoys the material world, but one does not make one's happiness depend on the material world. The material world goes up and down. You know that song of Sinatra, that you're riding high in April, you shot down in May. And so if you're looking to the material world outside, of, you're looking outside of yourself for fulfillment, you're going to be on a roller coaster that goes up and down. And the irony is, though, when you are detached from the material world, as you pursue success, as you pursue acquiring things, um, that as you do that, you actually enjoy the process more than when you believe your self-worth and peace and happiness depend on the outcome that you don't really control. You know, if you succeed, great. If you fail, your happiness and self-worth are not in question. They're not at stake. And so that's, that's a really important thing for people to remember. And, you know, the, the, the thing you have to understand, we all have to understand, is that the amount of pain and suffering that we go through with life, the fear we're running, the stress we're, un, we're under, this, this, the, you know, this uh, push to succeed, to gain, to be competitive, to be aggressive, it's all been programmed into us. And so the question is, how do we get deprogrammed? And the answer couldn't be simpler. The answer is awareness. What you are aware of, you control. Just like what I found you know, in that dark night of my soul that night. What you are aware of, you control. What you're unaware of continues to control you, control your life. So it's enough for you simply to be watchful and aware of what's going on inside of you, especially negative emotions, painful emotions. And through that, all this neurotic within you that's been programmed in you to make you neurotic will begin to drop. So the first step you need to do is just to get in touch with those negative feelings that you're usually not aware of, that, or that you're repressing, or that you're trying to change and fix and turn into something else. Just allow them to arise. You know, hurt feelings, feelings of stress and nervousness and tension, feeling gloomy, moody, a feeling shame, self-hatred, you know, that life is pointless. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Be keenly aware every day throughout the day of what your emotional state is and allow it to come into awareness. Step back from it. 
uh, as if you're watching someone else, but at the same time, allowing yourself to feel it. And then the next step is to acknowledge that this upset, this emotional reaction that I'm having, that's coloring everything right now, that's, that's narrowing my perspective, that's making me feel threatened, it's in me. It's in this programming that's been put in me. It's not, and to recognize so what it's you're not saying, happening. what you're saying there, Don, if I may, and Please. does this tie into the four steps uh, to rewire, rewire your brain, the end of stress book that you wrote? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, it's the end of stress, four steps to rewire your brain. First step, Don's saying is awareness, of course, which is the most important because without that, you never get the steps two through four. The second step you're then saying is that realize that this is your unique programming because so often many of us kind of just assume that whatever we're feeling is what every other person is feeling too. Yeah, that's what we assume. And the thing, the thing that we assume is that, um, well, you know, that this, that this is the truth, that my happiness, my peace of mind is out there in the world. It's not, it's not in me. And once I, you know, once I achieve this, uh, I get this person, I get control over this situation, I'm going to be happy. And we bounce around in that and our lives go up and down and up and down and up and down. And so basically what we, what we want to do is we want to bring into awareness that uh, these, um, the emotional state, the suffering we go through because of that programming, just to begin to understand how this programming is working within us. And one of the things that people do is that they end up blaming themselves for it. They go, well, what's wrong with me? I need to change myself. Well, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just the way you've been programmed. And you, you've, you've swallowed the Kool-Aid to such an extent, you don't even question it anymore. You think it's reality. Well, through awareness, what you do is you begin to wake up to, there's this algorithm, there is this computer program that's running in me that's designed to make me miserable. And that no matter what I do in this program that has me seeking for everything outside of myself, no matter what I do, I'm going to end up unhappy. And this program is in me. It's not in reality. Reality isn't doing anything to me. It's happening in me. And what you realize, begin to realize after a while, as you begin to identify how this program is running you, you begin to understand that those emotional feelings you're having are trying to wake you up. They're actually happening for you, not to you. And then the third step in this, and this is all from DeMello. This is from his book, um, Stop Fixing Yourself. You can find these steps in there, as well as in my book, The End of Stress. So the third step is don't identify with those negative feelings. Don't judge yourself for them. Don't even judge them. Don't say, particularly, I am de depressed or I am afraid. Or, or I am pessimistic. You know, that's defining yourself in terms of a feeling. And that's your illusion. That's your mistake. In no way does a feeling affect your essential self. You, there's a part of you, a spiritual part of you that's beyond this. It's above all this. It's in the world, but it's not of it. Well, your brain is very literal. And so one of the things we know in neuroscience about the brain function is that when you say, I am depressed, your brain takes that literally and it begins to activate neurocircuits that lead to, to you to a hormonal state in which you become depressed. Or I am afraid that will activate your amygdala. Your amygdala will, will dump stress hormones into your system that will 
and animate that fear into to the point at times of it becoming overwhelming. And so you don't say I am depressed. You can say my experience is depression. My experience is fear right now. Fear is there right now. It'll pass. And that's the third step is understanding that everything passes in this world, especially your emotional state. You know what your emotional state that was it was uh, torturing you a week ago. You can't even remember, you know, out of sight, out of mind. It passes. Mm. And so allow it to pass when it does. Allow it to come up. Allow it to, uh, allow it to come into the understanding that it's happening in me, not to me. It's not in reality. Don't identify with the feeling. Just let it be there. Watch it as if you're watching it happening in somebody else to give you some, some objectivity. And then it will it will eventually pass. And when it passes, then my suggestion to people is become quiet, relax, settle into this open space that just happened for you. That narrowed space that you just came out of opened up into a wider space. You're now out in the meadow. And be quiet within yourself. And what you will notice is that feelings of contentment, Feelings of joy will begin to bubble up. You'll, you'll feel a fluttering in your heart because your heart is opening because it's not being repressed anymore. And you do this for, for two weeks. Uh, I've not known a person who's done this process for two weeks that didn't benefit from it, get started, and you'll quickly see the result. Is that in, the in final step, of, the fourth step is get quiet, Don? It's just to get quiet. Got it. Just surrender, surrender to the to the space that just opened up and that space that just opened up. That's real. That's not an illusion. That's not your programming. That's your essential self. That's That's your natural state, as you point out. That's your natural state and that natural state, the elements of that natural state, the qualities of that natural state are happiness, our peace, our love, our sense of connection and what will arise as you surrender to that moment is a feeling of connection with your own heart and how you're with the feeling in your heart of its connection with all that is with the people in your lives, with the world around you, with, with beyond this world Uh, is an incredible moment when that happens. And it produces a fundamental change in your experience of life. You're different. You respond to life differently, the ups and downs of life. Uh, you know, they come and go and you come and go with them. You're not trapped. You're free. You're much more alive. Your eyes open to the truth that people everywhere are searching for, namely that fountainhead of peace and joy that hides in every human heart. You know, and the upsets will continue to come. You know, we still got this brain to deal with, depending on the depths of your program, you know, but I can assure people of this. I've not seen a single person who gave time to being aware in this way who didn't quickly see a difference that that they celebrated. Wow. That's just uh, absolutely incredible stuff, Don. Tell us where we could find you online. I know we can go for hours on end talking about this stuff. um, And maybe we can do a, a part two because I'm fascinated by your work and all these different mental, emotional, psychological things that allow us to live happier lives. Uh, where could people find you online? And we'll make sure we link everything up in the show notes. Yeah, they can find us at demellocenter.com. 
they can find this book, Stop Fixing Yourself by Anthony DeMello at Amazon. It's been out now for uh, about nine months, so the, the price of it's coming down, so it's a good time to buy it. There's also an audio book of it. Um, also, Anthony DeMello's Awareness. They can also find my book, The End of Stress. It's at Amazon as well. Yeah, and uh, I see DeMello's book was uh, got a recommendation from Tim Ferriss, and many people yes. who listen to podcasts know who Tim Ferriss is. So That's right, and, and uh, for people who are very spiritually minded, it also got an endorsement from Eckhart Tolle. Ah, very nice. Uh, Don Joseph Goey, check him out online. We've linked him up in the show notes. Don, thank you for enlightening us today and shedding light into this uh, really, really important issue, uh, happiness, living better lives, being awake and aware. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you too, Nate, for, for bringing, the, bringing the messages you bring to the world. You're doing, you're a light of the world. You're doing great work. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps, wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.